0: I'm going to start with a, a little bit of a vignette or a story uh, and, f- and from there I want to open out into thinking about what the state meant for the people that were to live in it. Um, on the 25th of August 1928 the readers of the Connacht Tribune were informed. On Thursday morning a young woman inmate of the Magdalen Asylum Galway whose name is stated to be unknown escaped from the institution. She is described as being aged about 25 years, wearing a black skirt, and had a slight stoppage in her speech. For me, this small snippet of a day in the life of Ireland in the late 1920s, barely a square inch of newsprint, tells us much about the status of women, the power of institutions, and how our brutal treatment of the most vulnerable was normalized and played out in everyday life. The strange breed of young woman inmate didn't even warrant the very basic ingredients of biography. The only distinguishing feature of certainty was her slight stoppage of speech. Now, I think in this period of commemoration, we might pause for just a minute to think about the life obscured in this ad and the world revealed by it. How could anyone place an ad not knowing the woman's name? How long had she been in the asylum? She was 25, so legally an adult. On what grounds was she imprisoned? And did her imprisonment predate the very state we're considering today? Was it that stoppage in her speech that had singled her out and rendered her different? Was she caught? and returned to her prison. And did anyone ever remember her name and record either her life or her death? However, in her bid for escape, she pierced briefly the sanctimonious world of moral certainty Ireland was building on backs such as hers. She also tells us a good deal about what the president has asked me to consider today, and that is the institutionalization of exclusion. We are currently experiencing a period of self-reflection as a nation, and so we should be, which has been largely focused on our treatment of women and children in carceral institutions. This is no coincidence, because the systematic demonization of the so-called unmarried mother since the mid-19th century and before, indeed, was indicative of a wider system of structural violence in which all women were contingent actors. Their belonging dependent on their behavior. Any woman could have been sent to a Magdalene Asylum or a mother and baby home and be held there for an indeterminate period of time against her will. And I imagine many, many women reading that newspaper, and indeed young women, and knowing that fact. This was, as we can see from the ad in the Conic Tribune, played out in full sight of the nation, in part because it was supposed to act as a warning to others, but also because it was part of the process of institutionalizing exclusion. And that's what I want to think about a little bit, that idea of how that process worked out and what was necessary to get so many people, if you like, to go along with it. The process was considered vital to the new nation, Underpinned as it was by ideas of belonging, after all we can only include if we have a sense of who it is we want to exclude, as I think both the papers before me now uh, indicate. This process of normalising these categories, the insider and the outsider, the respectable and the deviant, was a vital component of nation building in many places beyond Ireland as well. As we've seen among Professor Patterson's Belfast shipyard workers, this process was often complex and always influenced or inflected by the priorities of the given context, be that religion, gender, class, ethnicity, or race. It's usually framed as intuitive and natural or God-given and moral. Because a prerequisite for institutionalization is its normalization. In Ireland, institutionalizing became the verb of choice for the realization of exclusion, and on a really significant level. Um, And this is also inflected, of course, uh, hugely so by class. The visible role of women on the anti-treaty side of the Civil War and the active role of many women in the unrest and revolution since 1916 added, I think, a new intensity to an anxiety which had been evolving since the early days of the suffrage campaigns. And it's really acute, that fear. But what does this mean if women come out into the public sphere? And to what degree is that going to destabilize the ideas we had of of, of respectability, or indeed of nationhood? Thus characterizing the women engaged in the Civil War, and these were the kind of words often used as hysterical, crazed, and emotional, God forbid, uh, did Important work in denying them any political agency. And I think also in effectively undermining the idea of women as capable of independent political consciousness that wasn't dangerous. And it's really subtle and not so subtle in some environments. But the impact of that was really subtle on the ideas of who held political consciousness and who could engage with their statehood on those terms. As Cardinal Logue lamented in 1923, from a pulpit quite similar to this one, a number of young women and girls have become involved in this wild orgy of violence and destruction. Should this fell spirit spread, he warned, alas for the future of motherhood in Ireland. We have ever been proud of the women and girls of Ireland, and justly so, he told his audience. Their reputation has been a precious asset of the nation. So while there's little doubt, I think, that the fear of social unraveling underlay much of the so-called moral panic of the 1920s, these people were afraid that this civil war would be unstoppable. And that fear is very, very uh, obvious in the way in which it fuels the sort of gendered representation of this chaos. Irish nationalism and unionism's cleavage to the precepts of respectability, I think, were equally important drivers of this agenda. How deviance is classified and marginalization is defined tells us a good deal about where political power lies. The notion of respectability provided fertile soil for the making of a fledgling Irish nation embedded, as it was, in middle-class ideas of ownership, progress, governance, and control. In effect, respectability became an organizing principle. It had places and spaces for people, creating a logic of governance and behavior by ordering, protecting, and confining. And I want to come back to that idea of protecting. For me, its greatest trick was to mask the violence used to hold it in place by rendering it normal for the greater good thus converting implicit and even explicit violence into a reasonable correction, an action to protect the whole. On Confirmation Day 1924, the Catholic Bishop of Galway explained to his flock that there were six local women, he said, on the parish due to their lapses in virtue. Now, what he meant by on the parish was in the work home, which at that point had been renamed the county home. You'll often hear people confusing that with mother and baby homes. The terms are actually should be distinct because they were different institutions, but they were part of this network of institutionalization. So picture yourselves, Confirmation Day 1924, parents sitting beside you, and the the bishop is telling people that there are six local girls on the parish public nature of this declaration is very important. To the fathers of Ireland, he said, if your girls do not obey you and they are not in, at the hours you appoint for them, lay the lash upon their backs. And I know the president has given the full citation at another one of these Machnav uh, events of that particular quote, but it would have had real resonance for the parents in the audience. But think about the permission this ordering gave for the embedding of violence at the heart of social relationships. They don't do what they tell you, lay the lash upon their backs. And into social structures. And it remains palpable and had real and physical consequences for thousands of people, for all the young boys and girls sitting in that audience, particularly for the young girls, who would fear, viscerally, ending up on the parish. Worse, declared from the pulpit. In the name of respectability, institutions such as Magdalene asylums, county homes, and mother and baby homes were normalized as sites of moral correction. Nor was this a uniquely Catholic message. The readers of the Church of Ireland Gazette in the same year, also in 1924, were informed that the increased moral threat which which Ireland faced was owing to, and I quote, the fact that young women have a greater degree of liberty accorded to them. Therefore, the author told his audience, the applications to rescue homes pouring in from the superior class of unmarried girls, from clerks, typists, teachers and certified nurses are mounting by the day. And the message there to the audience is, class is no protection from immorality if women are given too great a freedom. And we know also from recent reports that the way in which institutionalization functioned across the border was not much different. There was no comfort for women in crossing those borders. The rhetoric and the impact and meaning of that rhetoric was remarkably similar. Deviant women, and the definition could be broad and arbitrary, were to be excised from the bosom of the nation. The single mother was framed as an anathema to the legitimate family, she undermined it, She endangered its standing and the standing of all its other members. You didn't want to have a sister of yours on the parish that would make your own prospects of marriage uh, more complicated and difficult. Thus, the respectable family needed to banish her, and they were told so, and told so frequently. Indeed, the fact that in individual houses and homes around the country, it was often impossible to reconcile the ideal with the real wasn't a weakness of this orthodoxy. It was its core strength. Because the tension created between that disjuncture encouraged conformity and silence. Instead of sitting at home and thinking, this isn't how it is for us. This isn't the reality for us. Let's speak out. You thought, let's stay quiet and do our best to not draw attention to ourselves. You don't want to be declared from the pulpit. When the consequences were so high how many people were in a position to speak up? The ruse of protection meant that only when you failed to perform as you ought did you notice the categories that held your social existence, good daughter, good wife, moral girl, upstanding citizen, were not merely abstract. Then the protective veneer became something else, something much less benign, something with the power of moral correction, a license control and force compliance. A dangerous mother was removed, an immoral daughter was expelled, a neglectful parent had their children taken away. This could be done for your own good, for the greater good, for the good of the nation. The implications of the moral universe the new Irish Free State cultivated was not just hyperbole. It's painful and often devastating impact is inscribed in our archives. Its political economy informed everything, including, for example, the military service pensions. The collection, as you'll know, is online. It's a wonderful resource. A colleague of mine, Marie Coleman, uh, told me very early on, it's not just a source for revolutionary history. It's a wonderful source for social history, because of course these things don't exist in a vacuum. And in a sense, that's what I'm interested in. How did this kind of notion about respectability intertwine with who gets valued in this new state, and who does not. And I'm interested in how that plays out on a micro level. We think about the rhetoric, and we tend to quote the archbishop from the pulpit, and that's who we remember. But what did what he said actually mean for individual people? Well, Let me give you one example from the pension collection. In 1922, Mrs. Rose P sought a pension for herself and her two small children upon the death of her 24-year-old husband, shot dead after only three weeks of service in the new National Army. However, there was a fly in the official ointment. Rose had not been legally married to the father of her children. Although the Irish Ministry of Defense pointed out that the British Army would have recognized her as a common law wife for the purposes of a pension, the new Irish dispensation was to prove its discerning credentials by refusing her and her children support. And her children ended up in an institution, literally. The price of the new state's moral imperative was to institutionalize exclusion. And we can see it played out in the archives, really wherever you look. Despite this negation, and this is the thing that actually moved me most when I looked at the file, it took them uh, 97 pages to say no, by the way, and two years, but despite this negation, Mrs. P's legitimacy as a mother and her right to compensation for the loss of her breadwinner and life partner who had died in service of this new state, she felt no sense of rightful anger or expressed none at all. In fact, she felt fear. And she wrote, begging the Ministry for Defense not to blow her social cover. Please don't tell my employer that I was not married to my husband and that I am therefore not a legitimate widow of the nation, because she feared, and probably rightly so, that she would have lost that very precious job she had in the county home. The gap between the ideal and the real was often left to women to negotiate alone and in fear. While the 1922 Constitution of the Free State honored the commitment to equal suffrage, it did not prove effective at preventing the enactment of legislation throughout the 1920s and 1930s, which pigeonholed women's citizenship and undermined it in terms of employment, in terms of welfare, and in terms of even serving on a jury. Therefore, the right to be, uh, uh, um, if you like, judged by your peers was denied all women. The 1937 constitution represented a high point of this gendered vision and it's been referred to already by our keynote speaker in terms of how regressive it was in defining women's role through their capacity as homemakers. Indeed, in a response to the draft constitution, the Joint Committee of Women's Societies called out the ruse of protectionist rhetoric for what it was, telling de Valera, the only protection women need and the only protection women ask is equality under the constitution of rights and opportunities. And I think their use of the word opportunities is really interesting. They were one of the few organizations actually campaigning on behalf of the unmarried mother and were aware of the way, of the implications for, of, for opportunities in a way that lots of other contemporaries weren't really until the 50s and 60s. Miss Rose P might well have agreed with them. But ironically for her, and for thousands of women like her, the 1937 Constitution may have pigeon-told her as a homemaker, but it was never matched by its promise. It promised not to force women from the home due to economic necessity. And as JJ Lee remarked, this was honored more in the breach than the observance. So what of historians? And I'll conclude with this reflection on my my discipline. Sadia Hartman, who works so imaginatively to reclaim the history of black women, when considering the challenge of writing the history of women slaves, asked How does one revisit the scene of subjection without replicating the grammar of violence? One clear way, I think, to avoid re-inscribing the harm of the past in the narrative of our history is by deconstructing the ecosystem of power that has shaped the nation, its archives, and in many respects, the discipline of history itself. We might start by asking, how many people could have afforded to see the world differently? Who was in a position to act differently? What would it have taken to produce a counter narrative of inclusion and compassion to say to Miss Rose P, of course the nation will take care of you and your children. That's what we fought for. How many lived against the grain of the consensus, absorbing their pregnant daughters standing by their disgraced children, siblings, or neighbors? What were their strategies, and what can we learn from them? Institutionalizing exclusion was pivotal to the structural violence that underpinned inequality in the past. A failure to acknowledge this in the history we write misses how central it is to the story of the nation and to the continuity of those inequalities today. Thank you very much. Thank you.